namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa uttang dhammang sankhang namasami friend asked in the tea session the other day about goals and he said that the goals of his life weren't working quite well how could he establish other goals in his life and um, good question you know, sometimes Buddhism because we talk about letting go a lot and letting go of craving it sounds like you really can't do anything but the the problem really is ignorance rather than craving ignorance of the way things are and ignorance of cause and effect mm. so obviously we all come here because we have some aspiration to peace we want to live a life of greater generosity and compassion and so on we have we have aspiration which is very wholesome and good <clears throat> and then if we if we can fulfill that aspiration that our life does feel complete in 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 the ways of the spiritual heart but to fulfill that aspiration we need to understand how to do it hence you have a teaching and uh, and the teaching um, sometimes teaching is just very analytical cause and effect analysis of of uh, suffering and the end of suffering just straight uh, psychological intellectual analysis of the way things are and the consequences of doing A or B um, so you need you need we need that kind of information to understand the project we need the, the right understanding of um, how to cut a tree down we have to cut those trees down you see some of them are already cut down there they have a fungus and they're decaying so probably in the autumn soon we'll take those trees down so to cut a tree down you got to do it right uh, you need a chainsaw and you need to make sure you uh, wedge it the right way and so on and so forth um, so in the same way if you set about trying to cut the trees down and you don't know what you're doing you get your chainsaw stuck in there or you get your head crushed by a tree not a good idea uh, so the intention might be good and wholesome and skillful and such like, but the information isn't there, the right, the right way of doing it. So right understanding in, in, in Buddhism is not, not a doctrinal position, but rather uh, an understanding of the workings of the mind, of our social life, of our psychological life. Uh, and from the understanding of that, we can move towards that which is more peaceful and more compassionate, more generous. And from that right understanding, we have the ideas of right practice. And right practice is, it's coached in various ways. Sometimes it's coached in the ways of uh, fighting. So you're fighting the defilements or fighting Mara. Uh, very much the way we talk about cancer now. This person had a, is fighting cancer, is a battle with cancer. Not that I necessarily agree with that way of talking about cancer, but and when I get it I'll tell you what analogy works for me um, but so that's you, you find that kind of language the Buddha before his enlightenment says I won't move even if my 
I won't move from this place even if my blood dries up until I'm enlightened. That's the kind of warrior fighting uh, imagery you get. Um, personally, I never found that imagery all that helpful because I already had enough of aggressive striving in me that it fed. It I bought into it in the wrong way. I didn't buy it into it with wisdom. I bought it in for my own um, personality bias. So striving and fighting actually produced bad results for me. Um, laying around and sleeping doesn't re- produce good results either. It's not that one just takes the opposite. Uh, another another way that we, we talk about the practice is training. And this is very much the monastic way of talking about our, our life. Um, not that the others aren't, but when uh, a monk takes the robe, they the idea is they pick up the training and when a monk disrobes they put down the training so in in, in Buddhist monasticism uh, a man or a woman can come and stay and practice for as long as they want but they can also leave whenever they want so it's quite um, okay so the idea of picking up the training taking the rules of discipline uh, taking the suggestions around uh, training the mind in samadhi and concentration, uh, training the mind in certain ways of etiquette and social behavior, which makes us more mindful. Um, and this is say, what a monastery is based on—the idea of training. And then the third, third way that that we see talked about in the text is an agricultural model, and that's the idea of cultivation of um, uh, planting a, a crop and then taking care of the crop or the tree or what, what we, whatever you have and then through the cultivation and care of that there's the fruit and the fruit falls from the fruit tree say so those are three interesting ways of thinking about goals uh, um, so it kind of depends on your personality I suppose but, but the uh, cultivation way the way of uh, fruitful practice is is a nice one uh, to to consider. And Ajahn Chah would often use this. So he would say, you know, when you when you when you want to plant a, a mango, if you want to get a mango grove, you want to plant mango trees. You take the mango uh, stone and you you incise it and you soak it in water and you get some shoots coming out of it and then you get good soil dig a bit of earth, put the mango seed or the mango stone in the earth, fertilize it, take care of it, water it, fence it so the animals don't get it, let it grow, take care of it, pick off the bugs when they're there and so on and so forth, watch it grow and keep caring for it, and then one day the fruit is there. Uh, and that's natural. Uh, don't You don't pull the fruit off before it's ripe. Birds might do that that you let it ripen and then one day you have ripe fruit. And that's a it's a nice way of thinking about goals. And that's very, very time bound. Uh, I'm here and there's some experience in the future of peacefulness which I can get. Danger with that is that there's a sense of becoming in that. And the 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 heart of Buddhist practice is is the sense of that there's a kind of timeless, silent presence in the human heart, this timeless, silence, open-hearted possibility, which is always 
available. It's not not available. It's not something that will only be available in 20 years' time. But because of the nature of our conditioning, the nature of our the kind of the overlays of nervousness and fearfulness and um, the anxieties and angers and frustrations and the kind of habitual things that we all experience as human beings, those overlays are quite thick. They're quite thick. And, and we only touch the fruit every now and then. Every now and then we notice, yeah, the mind can be quite peaceful. The mind can be, you know, I, it's really quite nice to live in this mind. But oftentimes it's not because of habit. And we call, we have that idea in Buddhism that this, the habits that we experience are vipaka kamma or resultant karma. So the, fr- the uh, cultivation or agricultural analogy is quite, it's quite a nice patient one. And I said, just do the right thing. Take care of the crop. Plan it the right way. Care for, understand how to, what the crop needs. Care for it in the right way. And leave, leave the rest to nature. Because the nature of, of the, the mind, the, the mind is natural, the natural phenomena, and peace is natural. It's not unnatural. Uh, and if we make the causes conditions uh, for peace to arrive in our lives, it will. It will arise. That doesn't, that doesn't guarantee that we don't get into a car accident or encounter um, global warming or, or our stock market our stocks go down the tube or things like that, those one has to deal with. But the inner world, we have we have this possibility to really train and to cultivate that which is good and wholesome. So the way I like to look at goals is to, to think of of goals both in terms of a long-term sense of, you know, what's happening with me in my spiritual life? Is this really why I came into this life? Are the results that I'm getting over the years um, in line with what I know I, I um, uh, is a possibility? Is that in line with that? Am I addressing the kind of core neuroses and, and sufferings of my own psyche? Am I really touching those or am I just peripheral around them? Am I really getting to the core of my suffering? To me, that's always been an important question. Not, not to be a Buddhist monk not to just take on a, a, a doctrinal Buddhist um, uh, social role, because that would be pointless. Then that's just a kind of social role. But to actually, am I addressing those those deep, deep things in my heart which are important? So that's in terms of thinking about long-term for me. This is the way I operate. And the other is is to make the goal very immediate, always here and now. And, and, and that idea is that, that um, the cultivation of a foundation for peace uh, all can only happen in the moment. I can only cultivate, train, uh, work with the present moment because that's all I really have. And if I make my goal something about the present moment, um, then I'm always doing, I'm always reaching my goal, as it were, moment by moment, moment by moment. There's a larger context. There's a larger possibility that by attaining these little goals or realizing these little goals, uh, the, the, the sum of that is, by the laws of karma, a peaceful heart. So what is the primary goal or attitude or understanding we need to bring 
all the time, and that's uh, apamada, or uh, a, an appropriate and unbiased attention on the way things are. That's primary. If, if we don't have that, um, then we don't really have anything. We just have thought, we have habit, uh, and we have the rolling on of events, we have reactions to events, we have um, kind of circumstantial enslavement. Whatever the circumstances are, our, our psyches are enslaved to those circumstances. There's no real freedom. So apamada is, is this, this unbiased attention, a wakefulness to the way things are. Unbiased, I was trying to indicate during this meditation, the, 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 the capacity to pay attention to something without resistance and without anticipation. So three things are involved there, aren't there? One is awakened mind, you're present. Now that's a big one in, for humanity because how much of our time is spent other than in the present moment? planning or worrying or regretting or fantasizing, whatever it may be, in thought. So just to be present is, um, is a profound goal, uh, a profound goal in Buddhism, just to be present, to do that all the time. Uh, and that doesn't require any particular mental state. You can feel upset, you can feel peaceful. It doesn't require any body set. You can feel sick or healthy. It doesn't require any kind of position like hierarchy you don't have to be a monk or a lay person so so this this uh, this awake mind and then this unbiased attention this is important um especially those if you've been meditating for a while you quite often are leaning to quite often we're leaning towards some experience what you're trying to get either from history we kind of remember some maybe peaceful experiences we've had some insights we've had um, or, or we've read books, um, people have told us these are things you have to attain. So there's a kind of leaning forward trying to get some experience. And then the resistance is, is the, the tendency to, from that same angle, actually not want this moment. You know, both are working together. Resistance we notice when there's something like painful or, or uh, unpleasant. So, so in sitting meditation, say like, my ankle was causing me problems in the last 10 minutes so there's resistance right and so that resistance is is an object of mind and that uh, but i if i'm not careful if i don't have unbiased attention i don't notice the resistance and my attention becomes infused with resistance i don't want this and i try to get rid of it and that right away is not the goal that's not the goal that's not the point of it so just to notice something like pain, and then to bring up unbiased attention, pain is this way, it's hard. It's hard to do. And yet you could see that if I can do that, my mind immediately comes to a position of peaceful coexistence with something which is unpleasant, like pain. Immediately. I, maybe I can't sustain it for more than two seconds or three seconds, but immediately I've created the causes for peace in the future. Right? Because why? Because now there's pain, and I've undertaken, I have a goal to awaken to the pain. I have a goal to try to practice unbiased attention, so I have a practice. I'm cultivating unbiased attention on the unpleasant. I'm planting the seeds for unbiased attention on the pleasant. And that keeps uh, having fruition because I keep doing it. I keep applying that kind of attention. And so that is a, a cause for peace in the future. Now, it might not seem like much. It's just a big deal. Painful ankle. Move on it, fine. 
that's okay. But actually it is a lot, because each of those small small intentions in meditation um, create uh, strong suggestions in the mind. I keep repeating this, but what else can you talk about? You can keep, you know, that the, the suggestions we make to ourselves, the intentions we make to ourselves, are what are going to ripen in the future. So if I make suggestions around that which is unpleasant, to be patient with it. I make that I make that a suggestion. Then that's a goal I can practice with the unpleasant. To be patient or kanti, developing kanti barami or the, the virtue of patience. Now that's a very immediate goal. Uh, right now I'm going to try to practice patience with pain in the body. Now if I say to myself, I should be patient, I shouldn't be impatient, that's not practice, that's ego. I'm someone who should be different, but that's not what we're doing in Buddhism. We're here and now making the right efforts so that later on there is peaceful coexistence with pain because we're good at it. We're trained in it. We're skillful in it. So just, just think think about that. You know, you, you, your body hurts. You, first of all, are, are you awakened to pain, not just reacting to it, not just, oh, gosh, I have to do something. I have to, well, I'm going to go up. I'm not just thinking about it, but, but recognize, oh, this is pain. And then stopping and pausing. And then seeing unbiased attention and non-resistance, you're going to notice that, oh, I don't want this. You know, that's a really skillful thing to do. You become more aware, you're more present, uh, you begin to practice more patience by being that. And all of that is planting the right seeds. And then do that for day in and day out, day in and day out, day in and day out. The result has to be peace in all manner of ways. It has to be peace. Externally, again, you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. But internally, you have this, this heart now which both understands and is trained. It's not just about understanding. Because you, uh, you can have the theory down but still have the bad habits, the unskillful habits of um, causing suffering. And so a lot of the ideas that we have around these very immediate goals, this very immediate practice, are, are based upon... Uh, the sort of mythical life of the Buddha and the mythical life of the Buddha previous lives, I'm sorry, the, the previous lives, which are called the Bodhisattva. Um, in Theravada, the idea of Bodhisattva is different than in Mahayana. In Mahayana, Bodhisattva is a, is a newish idea. It's maybe 2,000 years old, where Bodhisattva is a 2,500-year-old idea. And that was simply that the Bodhisattva are the previous lives of the Buddha. And a lot of this is mythical and, and legendary. Bodhisattva idea is a different kind of idea that exists in Mahayana, and I won't go into that because I've never really practiced that, so I'm not so familiar with it. So the Bodhisattva idea is that the Buddha, through previous lifetimes, um, um, developed these, uh, these virtuous qualities. And that's a kind of good way as... as, as uh, as a myth, to look at our own minds, that our, our life, our life which is lived in, in a spiritual way, can be these, these, these kind of previous lives of the Buddha, where we also are, are using the life's challenges and life situations to develop these small goals. Then, as I often say, then, then all of it's very meaningful. Pain in the body is meaningful. Um, disruptions are meaningful. Fearful situations are meaningful. Successful, it's all 
it's all quite meaningful because the meaning is now ba not based upon some external result or product or experience, but rather an internal possibility of developing the heart. So it's quite wonderful that way. And the previous lives of the Buddha, um, they weren't easy lives. is isn't like he just kind of went to med school and got a med degree with no problem and then was a surgeon and, you know, all kinds of challenges in a very mythical way that the Buddha, to the Buddha was, was uh, uh, forced into almost. And the one, the one of these, uh, what we call paramita or virtuous qualities that the Buddha could not go against uh, was uh, truthfulness, honesty, satya. And, and such a barami is not simply being, uh, not simply truth-telling in a, in a social kind of moral way, but it's, it's truth-seeing, I would say, in the sense that uh, one takes responsibility for the conflicts, inner conflicts that one has as, as a way of developing the spiritual path. So I might have a conflict with someone, and it can certainly be their fault. You know, they could be quite insulting to me or, or rip me off in some way, but my, my inner attitude would be, okay, so why am I suffering here? And what, it, what is it that I can't be at peace with, equanimous? So it's not dismissing social conflict, but it's seeing there's always this inner dimension within which we can work. And that, that's truthfulness, or that's honesty. And that maximizes all experience. If there's 50% of my experiences where it's everyone else's fault I'm suffering, then 50% of those experiences create the delusion of self, and you lose 50% of your opportunities for enlightenment. So you've got to do 100%. Good idea, do 100%. So you do 100%. So all of it, all of it is, is, is to be awoken to. You awake to the, the, the non-peace of the mind, the conflict of the mind. This is not, not self-judgment. It's not like uh, hating myself for, uh, let's say, for uh, eating too much ice cream is not, um, is not truthfulness. Self-hatred is not truthfulness. It's self-hatred. But uh, truthfulness would be, oh, I ate a lot of ice cream because I'm feeling depressed and I always go to food to get away from my depression. Oh, I see. That's the cycle. Okay. That's truthfulness, isn't it? It's not saying that you shouldn't do that because you did it. And we do things. That's okay. But shows truthfulness is a kind of honestly seeing cause and effect, cause and effect, how that works. Uh, so we have these, these kind of wonderful uh, wonderful stories. And, and the last one, that uh, the story of Vesantra, was, was uh, the Barami of Generosity. And that's a very difficult uh, Jataka tale, these previous slides of the Jataka tale, because the Bodhisattva gave everything away, including his wife and kids, which doesn't go down well in Western culture, so we usually don't. <laughs> we don't mention that. But they are mythical. They're mythical ideas. He gets them all back, too. He, he gets his white elephant back, too. Um, they're kind of mythical things in, 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 you know, difficult things to give up. But it's interesting that the last, the last parami, the last parami was generosity. You know, this, 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 this sense of, of um, unlimited giving, unlimited generosity, to a sense, when you read the story, you think, that wasn't very clever. It wasn't very, very wise. But I think the idea there is that there is something about the, the, the baramita of generosity which, which really is going against the ego. It's really going against selfishness. It's really going against um, 
uh, anger, going against fear, going against all kinds of uh, negative things in our human mind. So that's that kind of like generosity wouldn't just be about sharing one's uh, resources, but it would be a generosity of spirit, generosity in listening, uh, a generosity in, in participating, uh, a generosity in thinking, the way we think about others. And, and generosity has this lovely uplift quality. It really is a, is a um, if you think about the, like, you know, the generous things that you've done, and the generous um, social situations that you participate in, even if they're difficult and complicated, and you've engaged in them, what's the memory of that? Isn't the memory really uh, peaceful and warm and, and so on? So that creates a kind of foundation for enlightenment, right? So, so you can, uh, if, you, if you're meditating and the memory of goodness comes up, the memory of having helped your parents or the memory of served someone or or memory of you know taking on a project to help someone memory of helping someone through grieving and, and so many other ways when those memories come up they create a pleasant feeling in the mind and when there's a pleasant feeling in the mind that's a, that's the basis for enlightenment in that way because you you then desire goes away if i have a pleasant memory uh like like i talk a lot about taking care of my mom and um uh, that, you know, I took care of her for nine years and she died in 2011. I'm still getting a lot of traction out of that. I get a lot of joy and, 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 and good feeling. And that is, is brilliant for the meditation because the, when the mind has that sense of goodness in the heart from good actions in the past, it doesn't want anything. It's fulfilled. And because it doesn't want anything, it's much easier to pay attention to the way things are. It's very difficult to pay attention to the way things are if already the mind is biased by some past activity which was harmful or cruel or unjust or uh, petty and so on. And those memories are more difficult to take on. So that's a kind of goal you could have, right? You could have that goal in an ongoing way, just to, like generous listening. I know sometimes, like if I, if I, if I want to do, do something, like I'm, uh, I'm trying to make a new bell striker, for our bell, and uh, I've been thinking about it a bit, and I made the striker, so I've got to figure out how to hang it. It's four foot long. And uh, so I've got it sort of figured out, and then uh, one of our monks, who's a brilliant engineer, came and made his suggestion of how to hang it. And he's much smarter than me, and I know he's much smarter than me, and I didn't want to tell him, because <laughs> I wanted my idea, Right? And then finally, I okay, tell me, how would you do? And it was different than how I learned. It's pretty better. So I could just watch. You know, be generous in your listening now. And then the little kid in me, I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> but, but then say, no, no, what's generosity here? Generosity is probably wisdom, too, knowing that he can do it better. <laughs> but just, just saying, just listen, just listen. I could see the resistance to listening. Why? Because I wanted my little project to go my little way, you know, little boy with a little project. And, and those, are, those are little goals, aren't they? They're kind of little things that we can constantly reintroduce into our lives. But uh, in terms of the, of the fruition of the practice, they, they're fertilizer, they're good watering, you know, all those other uh, images that we have for, for future happiness, and future peace. And, and I think you can also see the accumulation of that, isn't it? 
the accumulation of, of goodness, then the mind then flows in pathways of goodness. And then the pathways of, of, of selfishness and mean-heartedness, they're more like, oh, yeah, you tried that again on me, did you? So that I could see the little kid in me saying, oh, come on, Viridamoja. And, and then it's more like, it's more like a joke rather than a neurotic problem. It's more like, uh, oh, there's the old adolescent again. It's, it's not really heavy anymore. Whereas if I really believe in that, it feels heavy. It doesn't, oh, can't do it. Let's do it my way. And the ego becomes an adolescent adult, and that's quite embarrassing. Um, so in, uh, among the Baramitas, we have, we have listed ten patience, a truthfulness, energy effort, uh, determination, wisdom, constant, uh, equanimity, uh, kindness. There's a whole beautiful, beautiful kind of array of, of, of little goals that we can constantly look at in our own lives and work towards. And then the larger goals, you don't, you know, they become, they become less significant because they happen you know they, they start to happen just because that's the nature of karma the heart just happens to be peaceful this morning the happen the heart just happens to be happy this morning why because the causes are there but that means that we do have you know we have to be truthful enough to say when the ha when the uh, heart is not happy well, okay there were past causes all right I'll, I'll, I'll hang in with that and I'll just see, okay, the past somehow has created this present moment. But but now, I have a choice. I have a choice now. So even if I feel terribly ungenerous, terribly mean-hearted, um, uncooperative, bloody-minded, and um, <laughs> mean-spirited, whatever, that's okay too. Because in the practice of, of Baramita, it all belongs, which is the practice of kindness, and that, you know, I, I use that phrase a lot from Ajahn Sumedho. It all belongs. So even the mean-heartedness belongs. And so the practice of the good heart is this, this very large acceptance of even those most bizarre or adolescent or childish uh, emotions that come up. See, it all belongs. And then the goal is to know it as it is and then not to move in that direction. There's a difference between feeling the impulse to move in a direction as old karma and the resolution, I don't think I'm going to follow that. I'm not going to go down that road. But even if I get caught, you know, and I get, my attention gets caught and kidnapped by that road, okay, at some point I wake up to the results of that, ooh, that's not really good fertilizer. And there I make a resolution, okay, this is the way it is now. I'm going to be patient. These are the results. So this is wisdom. Wisdom sees cause and effect. And this is one of the paramitas. The paramita of wisdom is the capacity to reflect and the capacity to see cause and effect. We, we are beings in time. We, 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 we have memories. Hence, we are moral beings. And, and, and we can see cause, effect, cause and effect. So if the effects of my actions uh, yesterday somehow are creating a lot of confusion in my mind, that's a cause for wisdom rather than self-hatred, self-criticism. So we, we in, in, in the practices of the good heart, in the practices of compassion, it isn't a kind of uh, 
so demand that you be perfect and good and kind, because that's what Buddhism can sound like. It can sound like an impossible, smarmy kind of thing. You know, they're always going to be kind to each other and generous and sensitive, and I'll always listen to you in the most beautiful and, and uh, loving way, and then I'll never even look at you sideways, and then whenever you feel pain, I'll always be there for you. Nonsense. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just not going to be there for you. Sorry, mate. You know, I just got my own stuff I got to work through. So it is real. Buddhism is very, very real that way because you can take these very high teachings and make them uh, ideals which you then tyrannize yourself with into some horrible self-flagellation of, of um, inadequacy. But, but they're just reflections on directions to move. It's like where you put the rudder rather than the particular way the boat is moving through the stream. It's different that way. Determination is something that we've been talking in, in with the monks a lot, this vasa, aditana. And determination is, is, is a, um, what happens in monastic life. Monks will quite often, like during this the vasa, the rains retreat, we um, various monks are doing various kinds of practices. So one monk is uh, not having lunch. He's just having breakfast unless there's a dana offered so that he's available for dana. And then another, mo another monk is um, eliminated uh, all sweets and desserts. And it sounds a bit childish. And, and But actually, for those monks, that giving up, uh, what it shows them is their, their love of sweets <laughs> and their preference to have sweets. And uh, so one of the monks who's given up sweets, he, you know, I think he has a sweet tooth. And so every, like, I think Gamani brought the the tray of uh, cake in today, and and uh, it passed by the, the venerable non-sweet monk. <laughs> and he looked at it, and he says, no, thank you. Right? So he's practicing determination. If he was practicing greed, like me, he would have taken it. <laughs> Just go for it. But because he's practicing determination, he sees what see what happens. He sees the the desire for this coming up, and it's no big deal. I'm mean, a piece of cake. I mean, it's not like we're stuffing cake in her face all day, <laughs> once a day. But he sees the desire coming up. But he's made a determination. He's made a determination. No, for three months, no sweets. So that determination helps him to be mindful of craving. He's not saying the craving is wrong. Craving is natural, but now he wants to look at it. He wants to observe in himself the arising of craving, the non-following of craving, and the cessation of craving. So it's a bigger issue than this, the sweets. It's the it's a more fundamental issue of the very nature of craving. And what does craving feel like? And with something like cake, it's pretty innocuous, but it's very interesting, and it's very edifying. And so what he does by just... Um, making a determination. So the determination is to do a certain practice for a certain period of time, quite often publicly, or to the abbot or someone senior, and then to practice within that period of time that renunciation practice. So deeper than the whole thing around sweets is that he is planting the seeds for more awareness, more determination, more awareness of craving, more renunciation of craving, more power over any situation. And that is bigger than the cake. It's about his own mind. So at the end of three months, we'll see how he does with the cakes. 
he loses the plot, I'll tell you. <laughs> but you see the principle. You see the principle of, of constantly just like cultivating. You're cultivating in little ways, doable ways, not, not big deal. But it's not a rejection. It's not like, you know, to want something is wrong. It's just, no, I want to understand that part of myself. And how could I understand that? Well, if I make uh, a small renunciation, and then I use that renunciation to see the arising of the craving, to notice it as an object, not to attach to it. Very, very useful, very fruitful. And again, it, it lays a foundation for understanding Dhamma. Much deeper than that. So, Aditana links in with the second uh, uh, of the Noble Eightfold Path, right thinking, or right, uh, yeah, right thinking or right intention. Because when there is right understanding, so our, our um, guinea pig monk here, uh, he, he understands that he wants to look at that and be aware of that. And he sees it's important in his practice. So that's right understanding. So then he makes an intention. I make the intention. That's thinking. Right intention, not based on self-hatred, but on dharma, on cause and effect. Makes the intention. Now he wants to uh, magnify the intention, intensify the intention. What does he do? He makes a determination. I'm going to make this intention now for three months, all the time. All the time. And that strengthens that second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, which then starts to pay dividends. Starts to have um, a, a good result in peacefulness in the mind. The the um, the last of the mm, the baramitas um, upeka is is equanimity is is a is upeka is the name not upeksha upeka um, it it falls in various ways you find it in concentration practice you find it in uh, in ways of talking about the enlightened mind. Uh, and it's it's it the understanding of upeka equanimity is always to me seems to be conjoined with the open heart, and the open heart is that part of us uh, which is met to barami or the the sense of that it all belongs. So that keeps us open to everything. It all belongs, and the most bizarre or anything that's happening belongs. Syria belongs. Don't like it. Global warming belongs. Don't like it. Can do something about it, maybe or maybe not. And so it all belongs. It's not condoning it. It's not saying it's right or wrong. It's saying it is a part of the world. And my non, uh, my demand that it be different than it is is aversion. Wanting to do something about it can be, you know, can be very compassionate and very skillful and motivated and fine. But that primary, that primary sense of the non-contention with the way things are, and working from non-contention to change things, rather than the hatefulness of the way things are, and then working from hatred. So if I find, um, these are like our ticks here. You know, we have, we have a very healthy tick population, and uh, I don't like them, but they belong, and I, I wish they'd go to Mars, but they ain't, right? And and yet I we all constantly you know we we mowed the grass this morning you know we're trying to keep ticks down and so on and we do all kinds of path projects and we make a, a big effort to somehow make the you know the monastery a safe place to walk around and so on warn people about forest and tall grass but not from hatred not from hatred 
So, so it all belongs. It's like, okay, yeah, there are problems, and they belong. How can I work towards a, a good solution? So that's the idea of metta or, or uh, non-aversion. It all belongs. And then upeka is, is a kind of way of, of, of finding peace within it all belongs. They very much go together because all, all belongs to me is like an openness to life around this kind of constrained control of life the way I want it. And then the, the upeka is the peaceful coexistence with openness. Yeah. Yeah, they, they are these beings, they're trying to live too. These beings have their own life. Nature has its own cycles. I don't own it. It's not mine. All beings are the owners of their kamma, heirs to their kamma. So we use that refrain a lot, which is a very Buddhist refrain. So if you don't have a, a background in, in Buddhism, sometimes it's not so effective. But for, for a Buddhist background, that, that, that reflection on kamma, all beings are the owners of their actions, born of their actions, abide support of the actions, whatever they shall do for good or for ill, of that they will be the heirs, is the reflection on upeka or equanimity. And in terms of the agricultural analogy, you can see how um, the seeds I'm planting now are going to, they're going to ripen in the future. So if I'm heedless now, and I'm careless now, and I, and I abuse people or yell at people, socially that karma is going to constantly manifest. No one's going to want to be with me or like me. Internally that's going to manifest in ways of self-hatred or hatred of others or alienation. So that, see, I am the owner of my kamma, heir to my kamma, born of my kamma, whatever kamma I shall do for good or for ill of that, I will be the heir. And kamma, the idea of kamma or karma in Sanskrit, we use the Pali kamma, Kama has the idea of intention, has the idea of intention, intentional action, and action is both mental, verbal, and physical. So that's the idea of kama. Vipaka kama is a resultant kama. In popular, uh, in popular, popular culture, karma always seems to be like a result, but in the way it's presented in our text, it's the intention. So going back to something like determination and intention, you keep making the right kinds of intentions from wisdom, wisdom has to be the result, the internal result. Externally, again, this, this life is bigger than, than we can know, maybe. But internally, you can certainly constantly work towards that. And that's, that's the reflection on upeka, the reflection on equanimity. And a person who is well-grounded in, in, in Buddhist ideas will, will use that. Like I found that Asian folk have a, a better use of that than Westerners, because I think most of uh, Westerners we've been kind of raised in a one-life philosophy. Um, but if I look at the Thai monks and and my say Sri Lankan friends and Asian friends and so on, I find that they'll use that as a way of bringing the mind to peacefulness. Now, unless they're psychic, they don't really know that. They don't really know know that, and and, and very few people I find are psychics and can say that you know this this effect comes from a past life or whatever. But culturally, I think it's very, very helpful. So if someone has a sudden accident in a, in a, in a Buddhist family, there's still huge grief. There's a huge sense of loss. But we say, well, that was their kamma. For some reason, their, their lifespan was short this time around. That's their kamma. So it's a kind of, that's the Buddhist way of, of coming to a sense of acceptance and kind of mystery of these things. In Christianity, they would say it's the 
the will of God and or uh, Islam too, those ideas, it's God's will. Uh, in Buddhism, we don't have that kind of paradigm, that kind of... So it's more like a, 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 a moral life is generated from our own intentions. Um, so whatever whatever language you like to use, how can I be at peace with praise and blame? How can I be at peace with gain and loss? How can I be at peace with sickness and health? How can I be at peace with uh, good times and bad times, good fortune, bad fortune? Um, how would I do that? So as a goal then developing that baramita I would notice how I react to say uh, praise and blame praise and blame so someone praises me and I feel oh, yeah they're right <laughs> and someone blames me I said no I don't like you in whatever minor or major way you might do that and, and, you, and then you notice that you wake up to that oh when there's blame don't like it when the monk agrees with my project, I like him. And when he doesn't, I resist him. I say, ah, okay, so how can I develop upeka? How can I develop upeka as a goal? How can I work on that? I say, okay, next time I get blame, I'm going to watch my heart. I'm going to watch the tension in my body, the resistance, the language, the wanting to argue back or say rubbish or whatever. I'm going to notice that. And I might not kind of nail it right away but I can I can watch I can watch how it's working in my own mind and so that's a goal that's a goal which you can constantly reiterate and then that goal begins to play out in the mind which is more peaceful which has upeka so the baramitas are, are, are a, a, they're a kind of huge topic in Theravada Buddhism and that's just a sort of touching lightly on them but I think it's plenty of ideas so I'll leave that for your reflection today